how on earth, from pure stochasticity, does the organism or evolution find a way to get a probability that's so close to a half? This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today in episode 70 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Jeremy Gunnawardna from the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. He'll discuss his research replicating an experiment originally conducted over a century ago, confirming that a single-cell organism with no neurons is capable of surprisingly complex decision-making behaviors, which may constitute cognition. Here's Jeremy Gunnawardna. I'm Jeremy Gunnar-Wardner. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. I was born in Sri Lanka, Ceylon, as it was called at the time. I grew up in England. Uh, my father was in the Foreign Service. We got transferred to England, and England became home. And in fact, I was a pure mathematician. At the time, I was doing pure maths. If anybody had told me I would be working in a medical school and studying biology, I would have fallen off my chair laughing. One of my problems as a pure mathematician, I don't know if it was a problem, but uh, it made me a little bit different from some of my colleagues, was that I loved pure mathematics. I loved its, its rigor and clarity and beauty, but I also wanted to have some impact in the world. Uh, that schizophrenia never left me, and it took me sort of sideways because I was a postdoc at the University of Chicago, and they were just setting up a computer science program there, and I got sort of sidetracked into teaching computer science. And that was just a, you know, a hobby. It wasn't work. Maths was work and computer science was play. But teaching computer science um, sort of opened my eyes to the idea that pure mathematics could be used to study very complicated, complex systems. And that took me into industry for a while. And it took me a while to realize that computing systems, they're, they're great fun. They're complicated, but they're not really complex. And that realization sort of came about roughly about the time when the genome projects were starting. And I suddenly sort of woke up to this idea that complexity is really to be found in the living world and that biology is the source of it. And I didn't actually think I was going to leave industry, but I had an opportunity to come to Harvard as a visitor. And that was one of those experiences that completely changed my own thinking. I realized that all the things I thought were interesting were actually wrong or the wrong uh, direction to take and ultimately led to the position I have here where I find myself, you know, sort of immersed in a biological world and trying to make sense of it with tools from mathematics. The single-celled organism that Jeremy and his team experimented with is called Stenter Roselli. As neither Ryan nor I had previously heard of them, we started out by asking Jeremy to tell us more about what they're like and what's so striking about their behavior. Stentor roselli is a ciliate. This is a, a clade of single-celled eukaryotic organisms that are widely dispersed through most aquatic habitats. The ciliates are so named because they have um, cilia on their cortex, their outer surface. And by moving these cilia, they create flow patterns in the water. And typically, this flow pattern creates a vortex that brings water towards the end of a beautiful trumpet-shaped body where there is, in effect, a sort of oral cavity. Now, keep in mind, this is a single-celled organism. This vortex brings bacterial uh, particles. They're pretty omnivorous. And we've actually observed, and other people have as well, this single-celled organism is, is capable of 
capturing a rotifer, which is a, a multicellular animal, and actually devouring the rotifer. I mean, it must be a hell of a, a meal. It's a bit like a boa constrictor swallowing a deer, but it's a voracious kind of predator. They are, are very diverse. Stentor roselli is um, unusually large. You often can literally see them with your naked eye in a good light. They're can be as long as a millimeter in extent. Roselli, as a species, is typically sessile. It tends to anchor itself to kind of debris in the water, algae or something like that. It secretes a kind of uh, mucus-like thing to create a holdfast. So you have to imagine, you know, a kind of frond of algae and this trumpet-shaped organism stuck to the algae by its holdfast. It will pull up its hole fast and sort of swim off. It uses its cilia then for locomotion rather than for for feeding. And so the ciliates were the subject of quite intense study because of their diversity and their very interesting kind of complexity of their ecological behaviors in the 19th and 20th century. And that's really where our story begins uh, with the work of Herbert Spencer Jennings on, on the ciliates. The term gene was coined in 1905, just a year before the early geneticist Herbert Spencer Jennings published a paper that Jeremy and his partners set out to replicate over a hundred years later. So we followed up by asking him to tell us more about Jennings and his contributions to science. I think Herbert Spencer Jennings was one of the great American biologists. His name perhaps has faded from collective memory recently. But in his day, you know, he was a leader in two things, I think, that he's subsequently been known for. One is his extensive studies of the behavior of what were then called the lower organisms, so uh, single-celled eukaryotes, other kinds of invertebrate animals. And he was part of a very uh, interesting and at times quite ferocious debate that was taking place about the nature of behavior, of the nature of life, what's the origin of consciousness and, and the complex behaviors we see in the living world. And there were two sort of major tracks in this debate. One was that ultimately it was all explainable by sort of physics and chemistry, by, you know, sort of simple reflex behaviors. And one of the leaders of this, this direction was uh, Jacques Lieb, a German biologist who subsequently came and, and worked for many years in, in America. And Lieb is uh, remembered as the kind of originator of these sort of reductionist ideas, which ultimately led to sort of behaviorism and the work of Skinner and, and Watson and others in, in developing a sort of very rigorous but rather sterile view of what constitutes behavior. And Jennings was on the other side of the debate, and he kept pointing out the fact that the cell is a kind of irreducible agent uh, of life, and it has agency in its own right, and complex behaviors, which certainly at the time were extremely difficult to explain in terms of this rather simple sort of stimulus response ideas that were emerging in the debate. And that was what stimulated his work on the lower organisms. Um, so he's very well known. And when I say very well known, I mean really in a historical sense, rather than in sort of contemporary, you know, kind of collective consciousness. Brian and I followed up by asking Jeremy when he first learned of the Stenter Roselli and how he became interested in researching them himself. I first heard about Stentor Roselli from a, a lecture that I heard from my friend Dennis Bray in Cambridge, who's a molecular biologist who was a, a sort of pioneer of the system's way of thinking about biology, of, of trying to approach the molecular phenomena we see inside cells from a computational perspective. What, what kinds of computations are cells 
carrying out. Dennis was very early to that view. Uh, he was giving a talk and he had a slide on this trumpet-shaped organism that I'd never heard of and this uh, amazing series of experiments that Jennings had performed on it. And I was very struck by this. And I thought, really, a single cell? Is it It's capable of doing all that? I, You know, this was completely outside the sort of traditional cell biology that we uh, habitually sort of hear about. Um, and so I started digging into it and I, you know, read Jennings's papers and uh, found that he was a, you know, really wonderful scientist. And I was very excited about this. And then I discovered once I, I started asking around about, so, you know, who followed up with these experiments and what's the modern story? I was really horrified to discover that um, among those people who, who think about these things, the experiments were thought not to be reproducible. So that was really the starting point for our work. While an organism as wide as the side view of a paperclip is certainly large enough to see with the naked eye, Doug and I figured they still must be rather difficult to experiment with, especially given the technology available to Jennings in the early 1900s. We asked Jeremy to describe how Jennings carried out his experiment into Stentor Roselli, as well as what it was that he found. Jennings's um, experiments describe a series of um, what you might call avoidance behaviors. So what he was doing, he was annoying the ciliate by squirting some carmine dye through a fine uh, pipette at its oral cavity. You know, keep in mind that, you know, this was back in 1900. He had very decent optical microscopes and a steady hand and many years of, of working with these organisms. So I think he was very skilled at doing this. So what he observed was that the stentor would go through a series of increasingly elaborate avoidance behaviors. The typical sequence that he described is they would bend away. So they're trumpet shaped and they would just sort of flex to take their oral cavity out of the, the stream. And if he persisted with the carmine dye stimulation, he noticed, and, and this takes an acute eye, particularly with an optical microscope, he noticed that the cilia around the edge of the trumpet um, would alter their beating. And the effect of this alteration is to change the vortex in the water. Instead of bringing particles towards the oral cavity, it pushes them away from the oral cavity. So it's sort of spitting, <laughs> presumably, so as not to ingest the carmine particles. And then if he kept on persisting by giving these sort of pulses of carmine, uh, the organism would then do a very dramatic action, um, which is very nice to watch, which is it contracts extremely quickly onto its holdfast. So it goes from a, a, a trumpet sort of flaring out very beautifully and sort of waving, and then extremely quickly it collapses down onto its holdfast. Uh, the cortex of the ciliate, the structure uh, around the plasma membrane is a very elaborate structure. It has ionic and mechanical properties, and it's a bit like a muscle, and, and it contracts very sharply. And so if you don't do anything, you know, it stays sort of hunkered down in this uh, contracted state. And then much more slowly, it sort of elongates back to its normal shape and starts its feeding behavior again. And then uh, Jennings would again stimulate it with the common pulse. And now uh, it wouldn't go through the bending and ciliary alteration, it would contract. So its behavior changes uh, to this contraction behavior. And if he kept on stimulating it, it would go through these contractions some number of times. And then finally, it would get you know totally fed up and pull up its hole fast and swim off. So those were the four behaviors. Uh, bending, ciliary alteration, contraction, and then detachment. 
that Jennings described, and, and the way he described it, there was this hierarchy, bending, ciliar alteration, contractions, detachment. Jennings' observation that these four avoidance behaviors existed in a neat order of ranked preference suggested that the Stenter Roselli were making relatively complex decision-making calculations, something that fascinated Jeremy. But later he learned that an attempt made by two researchers from the University of Nebraska in the 1960s failed to replicate Jennings' findings. This bothered him, so Jeremy set out to unravel what might be responsible for this discrepancy, as he explains next. I was in touch with some of the people who had done more recent sort of 70s, 80s studies on single-celled organisms. And I got uh, information about this paper where Rainiers and Walsh had tried to reproduce James's experiments and they weren't able to, and nobody believed that the experiments were correct. And as I discovered subsequently, there was a sort of backstory there. So one of the successes, I suppose, of behaviorism was that it, it managed to identify and define uh, particular forms of learning, which became the basis for, you know, sort of uh, very carefully conducted experimental studies of those kinds of learning behaviors. Some of these are very familiar. There's Pavlov's famous work on conditioning. There's also Skinner's work on instrumental learning or trial and error learning. And, you know, many people I think have, have seen Skinner's pigeons playing ping pong through this kind of trial and error learning. The, the experiments by Rainiers and Walsh were conducted at the time of, of those kinds of developments and they interpreted Jennings's work as showing some form of associative conditioning of those organisms and they tried to repeat the experiments from that standpoint. Now I think uh, Jennings certainly didn't think about conditioning and there are not two stimuli involved which are the basic form of conditioning experiments. It's an association between two stimuli and uh, Jennings only had one stimulus. So this, uh, this, the whole starting point for Rainiers and Walsh was, was sort of wrong. And it's, it's interesting why it was that the context they were working in led them to take this view. But the really bizarre thing about it is this. We'll hear just what it is after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to passing science. Here again is Jeremy Gunnar-Wardner. This I only discovered when I... Oh, I couldn't find this article because it wasn't electronically available. So I actually had to do the unusual thing of going to the library <laughs> and, and digging through the stacks. And it was many years since I'd had the opportunity to do that. So it was almost like a Dickensian experience. And I, I uncover you know, this paper and photocopy it and I start reading it and discover that they were unable to obtain Stentor Roselli. And therefore, they decided that they would just pick the nearest stentor, which was stentor ceruleus, which is very readily available. You can get it from biological supply companies. The only problem is that stentor ceruleus is, is typically not sessile, it's motile. And as they point out in their paper, when they try to do these uh, proddings, uh, stimuli that uh, to reproduce Jennings' experiment, the organism, as they put it, swam away. And so it's really laughable reading this paper and saying, seriously, this is an attempt to reproduce Jennings's experiments? It was uh, ridiculous. But the final kind of paradox is that somehow this very bad paper managed to persuade everybody in the field that Jennings was wrong. 
Uh, and so it raises the question, what was it that was going on in people's minds at the time that they basically didn't want to believe Jennings? And any piece of evidence, even this kind of nonsense that this paper had put forward, you know, really shoddily undertaken experiment was sufficient to convince them that this was the case and establish the fact that that Jennings was wrong. And I think the answer partly, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a historian, so I'm just guessing here, is that this became part of a larger debate on whether single-celled organisms could exhibit associative learning in the behaviorist paradigm. And associative learning is the more complicated form of learning, which really suggests a sort of significant learning capacity. It's, it's very much more elaborate than sort of non-associative learning. And this Rainier's and Walsh study of Jennings's experiment was interpreted in, within the con, uh, this conditioning paradigm. And that was part of establishing this consensus that single-celled organisms can't learn in an associative fashion. After months of practicing handling the stentor roselli, Jeremy and his team felt ready to carry out their own replication to see if the organism could really exhibit a hierarchy of behavioral responses or not. Ryan and I were interested in learning more about how they carried out their analysis and what it was that they found. To begin with, I think we had a very qualitative view of, of saying, well, you know, if you look at this, it looks as if this is happening. It took a while to get to the point where we could make a more precise statistical statement. And I think ultimately it was quite straightforward. There was nothing complicated about it, but it takes longer to think about these things than one might imagine in retrospect. And the idea was that we do an experiment on the stentor and it involves these pulses of stimulation and these behaviors. We tried to define the behaviors as carefully as we could in such a way that if you looked at the video, so we had a, you know, it's video microscopy. We have a quite long and good quality video of this process. So we tried to define the behaviors quite clearly so that we could say this series of frames that you see at this point in time constitutes, you know, a bending or a cellular alteration or whatever. And from that, we could abstract what we were seeing into a sequence of behaviors. So we gave little code letters to each of the behaviors and we can write down a sequence. So that step of you know going from an experiment and a video to essentially a mathematical entity, it's, it's a string of letters as a description, that was a very important sort of clarification of, of what we had. And then the question is, what can you say from these sequences? And what we realized is that although uh, each sequence is very different, um, some are very long, some are rather short, depending on you know, the number of contractions, the number of other behaviors that we see, they don't all show by any means. There's in fact very few that show this full behavior hierarchy. But you can ask the question, does alteration and bending happen before contraction or after contraction? But I should perhaps just explain that it's quite hard in our videos to distinguish the timing of ciliary alteration and bending. They often happen sort of more or less at the same time. So we made the decision that we wouldn't, we wouldn't attempt to sequence those. We would always treat them uh, as together, as alteration or bending, and treat that as a unit. And so if you were to assume that there's really no relationship between these things, as a null hypothesis. So, so if alterational bending and contraction were happening independently of each other, then we would expect to see in any sequence the order A or B followed by C as often as we would see the other order. And it's very easy to do the statistics. It's a binomial distribution to, to work out 
what the expected frequency would be of a particular order, and then to ask the question, well, is that the frequency that we actually see? And what we see is that actually when you look at the distribution, the frequency that we actually see is several standard deviations away from where it would be expected to be on the null hypothesis. And that was the basis for making the claim that there is, in fact, a specific order. It's not that it, we always see it, but we see it so often that it would not be reasonable to explain it on the behavior that there isn't a order. Dermy and his partners found that the stentor Roselli carried out the behaviors in a non-random order, just as Jennings reported. First, they were more likely to give up and detach from their holdfast only after first altering their cilia, or bending away. And secondly, they found that this alteration, or bending, was more likely to happen before contraction than after it. But curiously, Jeremy found that the likelihood that the stentor roselli would either contract or detach were as random as a coin toss, as he explains next. I think the intriguing thing about this is, um, you know, how are they doing this? Because it's 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 actually really tricky <laughs> uh, to to get a, a you know pure randomness and and a fair coin toss is as purely random as you can get. And here the the, the thing that to me remains extremely puzzling is it's a single cell and. All of this behavior and you know, elaborate sort of phenotype is orchestrated by molecules bumping into each other. And we know that that's you know extremely stochastic process uh, that is under the hood. So it's not surprising that it's stochastic. What's surprising is that it's purely random, that the probability is you know a half. How on earth, from pure stochasticity, does the organism or evolution find a way to get a probability that's so close to a half? That is really puzzling. And when we do it, we toss a coin. But the reason that that's half and half actually relies on very careful machining of that coin so that it, it it's uniform. And so that when you, you know, flip your finger and toss it into the air, the influence of the initial conditions is kind of wiped out. And if there was a tiny imbalance, it would it would show itself in something that's not quite 50%. Um, so that randomness, like a random number generator, requires a lot of care <laughs> to be really random. So how on earth does this happen in, in Stentor? I have no idea. I couldn't write down a molecular mechanism. I mean, we study these things, and it's easy to write down stochastic mechanisms because they're always stochastic. But trying to get them to produce 50% is not something I know how to do. Well, anyone who owns a dog or cat will tell you that yes, of course, non-humans can also think. The further you stray from mammals, the more dubious this claim becomes. Nevertheless, the Stentoroselli certainly seem to exhibit some form of learning, which implies that they also experience cognition. And for any creature, that possibility opens up questions about consciousness, free will, and choice. So we asked Jeremy his thoughts on just what counts as thinking. We kind of wandered into this a little bit like innocence in the wood, because what we study in the lab is sort of information processing in cells. Uh, we don't work on ciliates. We don't work on learning. It took us a while, and it was probably really only during the review of the paper that um, some of these issues really came out. So this whole question of what is learning is a, is a minefield. Even finding a definition that everyone accepts is difficult. But I, I think a, a reasonable definition of learning is the ability to take information from the environment 
and make a persistent change to behavior, even if the information subsequently goes away. And that's a very broad and very sort of loosey-goosey kind of, of statement. But I, I think that would get some consensus as a, as, a, as a reasonable definition of what learning constitutes in the context of, say, developmental biology, which is a very different context, but I think has interesting analogies here. We often use the phrase decision-making, you know, cells as they're going about the process of building the organism. You have a cell. It receives some cue from its environment, uh, typically a chemical signal, but perhaps mechanical or something else. And this cue uh, leads it to make a decision that it's going to follow a particular trajectory, a lineage trajectory, and become, say, a, a nerve cell, ultimately. Having made that uh, decision, it retains that knowledge and persists in that lineage despite the fact that the cue goes away. So on the basis of the very broad definition, one would treat that as, I would say, a form of learning. But I think that actually tends to cause problems for people who study learning because they tend to think of those kinds of decisions as being, quote unquote, programmed rather than being truly learning. And this is where it gets very difficult for us to sort of parse what's real learning versus what's not real learning. I personally think that decision-making is a particular form of learning, just as non-associative learning, say habituation, is also in the learning literature is regarded as a simple form of learning. You receive the same stimulus and uh, your response becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. Here, in the case of Jennings's experiment, he gives the same stimulus to the organism and it does something different. It changes its mind, as we put it. it. It decides to do something different. So I would regard that as a form of learning, but uh, we carefully removed the use of that word from the paper. Though published in the journal Current Biology, Dermy and his team's paper touches on various other fields, including history, mathematics, and cognitive science, and even has implications for philosophy and consciousness. So we ended our conversation by asking him what it was that led him, as a mathematician, to gravitate towards looking at biology in these counterintuitive ways. As a mathematician, I was educated in the British mathematical tradition, and it's very down-to-earth, and it regards issues of history and philosophy as being sort of continental European perversions. I mean, I'm, I'm caricaturing things, but broadly speaking, that was the attitude. And history was definitely one of the most boring subjects I dealt with at school was all dates and you know it meant nothing really at the time and so my interest in history and also philosophy was really provoked by coming to biology and i'd never really thought about them seriously before then and what i came to realize in biology is that it's often impossible for an outsider you know somebody who hasn't gone through the traditional apprenticeship of you know undergraduate phd stuff if you come to the subject from outside Many aspects of it are really mysterious, and I began to understand this when I started teaching, particularly because that's when you you know you stand up in front of a class and you have to say something, and then you think, is that really correct? And that's what provokes this attempt to unpeel the layers. And I found I just couldn't understand what was going on now and why it was that people were doing and saying the things they were doing and saying now without going back and sort of uncovering where do these ideas start and how is it that they've come to take the form they have now. So that historical dimension had just sort of grown. And I, I see, for me personally, um, I find that extremely important. I couldn't do science without thinking that way. 
That was Dermi Gudawardna discussing his article, A Complex Hierarchy of Avoidance Behaviors in a Single-Cell Eukaryote, which he published with Joseph Dexter and Sudhakaran Prabhukaran in Current Biology on December 16, 2019. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e70, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials we discussed during the episode. About those bonus audio clips. A week ago, most of us never used the term social distancing, but this is our new reality for the time being. So while it's not a big thing, all bonus clips are available at parsingscience.org, regardless of if you're a donor to the show or not. We hope this helps brighten your days a little. Stay safe, everyone. Next time, in episode 71 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Veronica Seveanno from the Department of Social and Methodological Psychology at the Autonomous University of Madrid. She'll discuss her research into our social perceptions of animals and how she's applying intergroup relations theory to understanding why we adore some animals but despise others. In the same way that we hold stereotypes about social groups, immigrants or women or whatever, we also do for animals. And our stereotypes uh, about animal species have an impact on how we feel and how we behave toward distinct animals. We hope that you'll join us again 